0: We're in our main message series, as you probably know, going through the whole chronological life of Jesus across all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, because we want to know Jesus for ourselves, see him in his word, not hear about him secondhand, but see what he said, did, and taught for ourselves. Last week, we saw Jesus send 70 of his disciples out on a short-term missions trip that was designed to build their faith. Jesus intentionally placed them in difficult and uncomfortable situations to teach them that they could indeed trust his word. You'll never know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. This week, we're going to be taking a look at what is probably the most famous of all of Jesus' parables, the good Samaritan. An oft-misinterpreted teaching, we're going to be challenged by the radical way the love of God works. And there are two ways, two angles, two applications to this text. So let's read through. We'll take a look at the first application that you're probably most familiar with already, and then we'll break it down and we'll work through the second application together. So let's read together. We're going to be in the Gospel of Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke in the New Testament, chapter 10, verse 25. So you remember last week, what's happened is the 70 have come back, and it says, Jesus rejoiced. The disciples are rejoicing. Jesus is rejoicing, which is the perfect time for the perfect killjoy to make an appearance. Verse 25, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him, saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? I want you to underline what shall I do. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? When it says lawyer, it's actually a bit misleading in our context because it simply means he was an expert in the law, the Jewish law of Torah, not necessarily the legal system of the Roman Empire. So he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26, he, Jesus, said to him, what is written in the law? Underline, what is written in the law? We'll come back to all of this. What is your reading of it? So I need to pause for a second here to explain what's going on. All rabbis, all Jewish teachers, when you see Jesus called teacher by anybody, it's just the English translation of the word rabbi. It's a Jewish religious teacher. All rabbis agreed that the most important part of the law, number one, numero uno, was what's known as the Shema. The Shema means here and was considered by the Jews to be the summary statement of all of Jewish theology, a full summary of the law. By devout Jews it would be recited twice a day, in the morning and in the evening as a prayer. And it first consisted, most famously, of a set of verses from the Old Testament book of Deuteronomy, and then later some additional verses were added to it from the same book and from the book of Numbers. But the original and most well-known part of the Shema reads this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Like every rabbi, Jesus himself had also taught previously that the Shema was indeed the most important part of the law. So when Jesus says to this lawyer, what is written in the law, what is your reading of it? Jesus is asking him, what do you believe the most important part of the law is? Everybody would expect that the lawyer would answer with the Shema first, that was sort of a given. What everyone was really interested in is what he would say was the second most important part of the law. That's where Jews and different rabbis would differ and split into their different theological camps. You would have some who would say, the most important is the Shema, love the Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and keep the Sabbath. You would have strict Sabbatarians. Or you would have people who would say, love your neighbor, would have more of a a social justice sort of bent. Or you would have others who would say, never miss a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And this is where they split into these different camps. So when Jesus says this, he knows he's going to say the Shema first, but he's really interested in what is this guy going to say is the second most important part of the law that's going to tell us where this guy falls in his theological thinking. So let's see how the lawyer answers Jesus. Verse 27. So he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. That's the Shema, which would have been expected. Here's the second part of his answer. And your neighbor as yourself. So this lawyer is claiming to be, at least theologically, more of a social justice guy, a love guy in his theological construct and system. Verse 28, and he, Jesus, said to him, You have answered rightly. Then underline the rest of Jesus' answer. Do this and you will live. Verse 29. But he, the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, underline justify himself, said to Jesus, and, and then underline this, who is my neighbor? who is my neighbor? He's a lawyer. So he wants to make sure that the term neighbor is defined as specifically as possible, lest he help someone that he doesn't actually need to. The smaller the group of people is who makes up his neighbor, the greater his odds are of fulfilling the law. So if Jesus says, your neighbor is only the most devout Jews, then his odds of being able to fulfill the law go up. So Jesus responds with a story. And you're Bibles will all probably have a title above this, something that says, something akin to the parable of the Good Samaritan. What's interesting is that every other time Jesus teaches a parable, it will say something like, then he spoke unto them a parable, then he taught them a parable. It doesn't say that here. Most Bible scholars hold that for that reason, this is not actually a parable, but a story that actually happened and actually took place. Doesn't matter where you fall on that, it's just a point of interest I mention as an aside. Verse 30 Then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, if you've heard this story, you've probably always pictured this road between these two cities. I always pictured kind of like a straight road. And if you know the story, I would picture like some trees or a couple of bushes that some bad guys could hide behind and jump out from. But in reality, this road would wind through the mountains and would get as narrow as 16 inches in width. So if you met someone who was coming the other way with a donkey in one of those places, you got a real problem here. I don't really know what you do. Jerusalem, the beginning of the road, was about 2,300 feet above sea level. Jericho was 1,300 feet below sea level, just 17 miles away. So it's 17 miles away, and you're descending pretty steeply through this winding mountain pass that gets as narrow as 16 inches in places. Not only that. But nobody would ever travel this road alone if they had a lick of sense, because it was famed for bandits who would wait in these places where the road narrowed, where you had no escape, and they would prey upon people who would travel alone. They would attack them, take everything they had, including their coat, beat them within an inch of their life, if not, kill them. So at the beginning of Jesus' story, we find a man already making a mistake. He's about to set off on this journey that is infamously dangerous alone. Jesus keeps talking and he says, and he fell among thieves, underlined thieves, who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest, underlined priest, came down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the middle of the story, Jesus tells a joke, which is so bad it could really be called a dad joke. Because when Jesus says the priest passed by on the other side, It was impossible for the priest to pass by on the other side because the road would have only been 16 inches wide at that point. So Jesus says, this priest sees this guy, wants nothing to do with him, so he passes by on the other side, and they all would have gone, which is why Jesus came as a savior and not as a comedian. So the priest passes him by. He's still dying. Verse 32. Likewise, a Levite, underlined Levite, he would have been a man from the Jewish tribe which served in the temple. When he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. So the story's going well. It's got intrigue, it's got humor. The crowd is leaning in as Jesus is teaching this. But now to give some context about what's about to happen next, we need to refresh our memories as to who the Samaritans were. There was a season in Israel's history where the country is divided into a northern and southern kingdom. You have two tribes in the south, ten tribes in the north. The capital of the north is the city of Samaria. And after a prolonged season of rebellion against God, as he often did, God would bring judgment, discipline upon his people through a foreign army. In this case, it was the Assyrians. The Assyrians come rampaging into Israel, into the northern kingdom. They take the ten northern tribes in captivity. Out Out of Israel, and they leave behind the elderly, the decrepit, the infirmed, the injured probably the mentally handicapped, anyone that they felt wouldn't be a real asset to them to take off with them. They leave them to tend for the land in Israel. But to make sure that they don't organize into some sort of rebellion, they also send a bunch of Assyrians into the northern kingdom of Israel to live there as well and mingle among them and sort of stop anything from developing in an organized way. When that happened, the Jews who were taken off partly out of loyalty, partly out of nationalism, and partly out of racism, expected that those Jews who were left behind would hold down the fort. They would simply hang in there until the time came again in the future when the Lord would restore them back to the land of Israel. The Lord had given them a command, do not intermarry with other peoples. And the Lord had given this command because Israel had a terrible track record of intermarrying with other peoples who had pagan belief systems. And those foreign wives would bring in their pagan belief systems. And the husbands would be totally overcome with lust and their beauty and would be like, sure, you can bring in your idols. We'll, we'll just make it all work out as long as you're here. So the Lord said, you can't do that. You, you gotta stay exclusive so that you don't bring in corrupt pagan belief systems. So the Jews who are taken off are thinking, you guys who are behind here, you're gonna hold down the fort till the day comes when we come back and Israel is restored as a nation again. But that's not what happened. When Israel did eventually return to the land, what they found is that those who had been left behind had indeed intermarried with the Assyrians and become a half-Assyrian, half-Jewish people. The returning Jews considered this the ultimate betrayal. This was a betrayal of their race. This was a betrayal of their people. This was a betrayal of the Lord. This was a betrayal of Torah and the law. It was the ultimate betrayal. So this new ethnic group became known as the Samaritans, named after Samaria, which was the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. And the Samaritans would continue to live around this area of Samaria, which came to refer to an area, not just a city, which was in the middle of Israel. You had Galilee in the north, you had Judea in the south, you had the Samaritans there in the middle, and they were hated by the Jews as ethnic traitors. So make a note of this on your outlines. The Samaritans were half Jews, half Assyrians, who were considered ethnic traitors by the Jews. Ethnic traitors. So to put this in perspective, The Jews hated the Samaritans more than they hated the Romans who were occupying Israel at that time because they said the Romans are a foreign people and outside people who have come in. You are of our own house and you have betrayed us. They hated them more than the Romans. They hated them more than the pagan Romans who were bringing in their pagan belief systems and setting up shop in Israel. They hated the Samaritans more than anyone else. Samaritan was the S word, probably closer to the N word in our culture. It was the most derogatory term that you could throw at somebody if you were Jewish. So back to our story. With all of that in mind, with Jesus' story being well-received thus far, him speaking to a Jewish audience, imagine the shock when Jesus says this, verse 33, but a certain Samaritan, underlined Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, where the victim was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. So he went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, and he set him on his own animal, his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. On the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, which is two days wages, gave them to the innkeeper and said to him, take care of him. And whatever more you spend, when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? Can you imagine the silence? Can you imagine the tension? Which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? So notice this. Unwilling to even say the word Samaritan, the lawyer responds, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said to him, Go and do likewise. The moral of the story, the lesson in this tale, the answer Jesus gives to the original question, who is my neighbor, is not simply those who are in need. That's part of the answer, but it's selling Jesus' point short. Jesus is telling the lawyer, the neighbor that you are to love is whoever the Lord brings across your path, even if they are your worst enemy. And even in saying that, I, I don't think we're grasping this yet. So imagine you're, you're driving home one day. It's raining. Traffic is crawling. And you can see that someone in this pouring Vancouver rain is changing a tire on the side of the road, having a real difficult time. Every, every time they try to crank the tire iron, it just pops off. And they're just miserable and exasperated, soaking wet. And you're thinking this poor person. And then as you get closer you notice that it's your worst enemy. And Jesus doesn't say, don't run them over. (laughs) Jesus says, pull over and help them change their tire. Help them. Even when we hear this, I think we're guilty of a failure of imagination because we don't understand what we're talking about when we say worst enemy. Imagine it is, your ex-boss, the one who treated you like dirt the whole time you were there and fired you without warning even though you'd done nothing wrong, done every task that was given to you well. Imagine it's the ex-business partner who stole everything from you. Imagine it's the man or woman who had the affair with your spouse that destroyed your marriage. Imagine it's the person who was texting or driving drunk and hit your child and killed them. It's the teenage boy who sexually assaulted your daughter in high school and got away with it. Jesus has taken this all the way with no limits, even if it's the soldier who killed some of your family members. If Hitler had survived World War II and you were a Jew and you saw him on the side of the road, pull over and help him. Jesus is saying he's your neighbor. He's your neighbor and you are to love him you are to help him with your actions. So knowing this, knowing how extreme Jesus is being when he says love your neighbor, how arrogant do we have to be to say, that's a good lesson, I'm gonna start doing that. How high of a view of ourselves do we have to have to respond to this the same way we would a folk story where the moral of the story is remember to brush your teeth oh, yeah, that's good. Listen to me. You cannot do that. You cannot do that. I cannot do that. We're not capable of doing that. There are things people could do that would fill me with such hate, such a deep desire to kill them. And a story from Jesus is not going to change that. I agree that what Jesus is describing is good and is what I should do. I agree that everything in the law is good and is what I should do. Every precept, every instruction, every command is good. But I can't do what Jesus is describing in this story. I don't know how high your view is of yourself, but if you're thinking, I can do that, then as we said, you're probably guilty of a failure of imagination. Guilty of not realizing there's things that a person could do that would make you genuinely hate them to the point of wanting them dead. If we're honest, the problem with all of us is that we simply don't do what we know we should do. We don't choose the path of greatest good all the time because we're also battling what the Bible calls our flesh, this body we're in that constantly fights to elevate our base desires above the will of God. There's this internal war going on in all of us. I know that's my problem, I don't know about you. So write this down. The problem with the Shema and loving one's neighbor as described by Jesus is that both are impossible to fully live out. Both are impossible to fully live out. Again, just track with me. Do you really think that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? You really think you do that? Nobody does that. Nobody does that. Nobody loves the Lord with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Nobody does that all the time, perfectly as an emphatic statement, nobody does that. So now what? Well, we start by realizing something profound that's hidden in the second application of this story, the deeper meaning, the hidden truth, what the rabbis would call a remez. You'll notice that Jesus never says, you are the good Samaritan. He says, you're the light of the world. He never says you are the good Samaritan. He says love people the same way the good Samaritan did. The Samaritan in the story is the hero, the role model, the example, the ideal whom we are to follow and emulate, which makes even more sense when we realize that the good Samaritan is in fact our hero, our role model, our example, Jesus Christ. Make a note of that, the good Samaritan is Jesus Christ. One of the reasons I love going through the Gospels chronologically is because some things pop out that you wouldn't otherwise notice. So just a couple of weeks ago in John eight, Jesus is having a heated discussion with the Pharisees. He's blowing them out the water with basic logic that they can't refute. And so we notice that they reduce their interactions with him to insults and ethnic slurs. In John eight 48, you might remember, then the Jews answered and said to him, do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? So again, remember, Samaritan's the most insulting term that a Jew can call another person. They call Jesus two things, right? They accuse him of two things. They insult him by saying you're a Samaritan and you're demon-possessed. So notice how Jesus responds in verse 49 of John eight. Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. They call Jesus two things. How many of them does he respond to? Only one. He says, I'm not demon possessed. He doesn't even address them calling him a Samaritan. Do you know why? Because to Jesus, being called a Samaritan is not an insult. He doesn't look down on them. He doesn't think they're a subclass people. He doesn't think ill of them. By not addressing the insult, Jesus is himself identifying with the Samaritans. He's saying, man, I'm, I'm as much a Samaritan as I am a Jew. That's not an insult to be called a Samaritan. And it's something that's reinforced here as he tells the story just a day or two later where the hero, the example, is himself the good Samaritan. Jesus is the Samaritan, the one who is what? Despised and rejected by who? The Jews. The Jews. Let's look at the text again from this angle. Verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer, an expert in the law, stood up and tested him, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So so notice the question that the expert in the law is actually asking. He's asking, what must I do? To be saved. In other words, he wants to save himself by living a holy life, by doing enough good works. And we see this confirmed when in verse 29 we're told, but he wanting to justify who? Himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? He's not looking for grace. He's not looking for a savior. He's saying, I can do this on my own. Just tell me what I need to do. He wanted to justify himself. So what does Jesus do? He answers the question that the man asks He answers the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And he reveals just a sliver of how pure, forgiving, loving, and free from hate a person would have to be their whole lives to save themselves. So write this down. The lawyer asked Jesus how he could justify or save himself through works. He asked Jesus how he could justify or save himself through works, The answer that Jesus affirms is, all you have to do is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And what does Jesus say? He says, do this, do it, and you'll live. Again, how arrogant do you have to be to hear Jesus say that and go, oh, cool, easy. Easy peasy, I can do that. Nobody does those things. Nobody does both of those things all the time. Nobody except Jesus. And that's the point, that's the point of the story. So make these two quick fill-ins on your outline and we'll unpack them. The man on the road is you and I. The man on the road is you and I. Every person who's ever lived, every person who ever will live, the man on the road is you and I. And the journey is our earthly lives. The journey is our earthly lives. For you see, every single one of us is born on the road to death. We are born into sin. We're blinded by our sin and unable to help ourselves from charting a course toward our own destruction. We're headed for death and destruction before we even begin the journey. Every single one of us in life is going to be chased down, attacked, beaten up by, deeply wounded by, thieves. And who are these thieves? Well, we know their leader. Also in John 8, Jesus told the religious leaders about this entity when he told them, you are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources for he is the liar and the father of it. So Satan's a murderer and in John 10 when Jesus is talking about the good shepherd he's going to tell us that Satan's henchmen, his demons, those fully under his influence are thieves. This is what Jesus will say. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. So write this down. The thieves are Satan's forces of darkness. The thieves are Satan's forces of darkness. And what gives them their power to attack us? Well, it's our sin. Our sin gives them permission to attack us. And the sin that humanity chose to bring into this world is what puts sin on the road of life. It's here because we brought it into the world. Whoever you are, nobody makes it through life without getting beaten up, bloodied by circumstances, attacked by situations we never saw coming, assaulted by bad things that we may or may not have brought upon ourselves. Nobody makes it through, unbloodied. Everybody gets beaten up. It doesn't matter how much money you have, it doesn't matter where you were born, it doesn't matter how nice of a person you are, life will come for you sooner or later because this is a fallen world. We all end up bloodied by our sin and the sin of this world, dying on the road of life. But wait, there's hope because here comes a priest and behind him a Levite. Here's the problem, the priest couldn't even touch the man. For you see, the man appeared to be dead and as a priest, priests were under a command from the Lord given to Aaron, the first high priest, that they were not allowed to touch any dead thing or they would become ceremonially unclean. So this priest is faced with a choice of help the man, or violate a direct command from God. And and he says, I I can't violate the command. If he had done so, he would have had to go back to Jerusalem, to the temple, go through some rituals to be made ceremonially clean. Would have been very embarrassing because he would have had to stand with all the ceremonially unclean people. And the priest who was administering the ceremony would have been like, Glenn, what are you doing here? "Uh, I touched a dead guy, I'm ceremonially unclean, just do the thing. Hey guys, Glenn touched a dead guy. Can you believe that, Glenn? What an idiot. So the priest can't touch him, won't touch him. So perhaps the Levite can help. Some of you know the Levites were one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and they all served in the temple. Not all Levites were priests though. All Levites would serve in the temple, but the priests would be Levites who were direct descendants from Aaron. So this guy is a Levite, still an employee of the temple, not bound by the same sort of laws. So he can actually touch the dead guy and it won't be too much of a big deal. The story tells us that he came close to the man. He doesn't just go (laughs) He actually looks at the guy, goes in a little bit closer, checks him out. And the reason he did this is because one of the favorite tricks of bandits was to actually play dead on the road. And then when you would go close to them, they just grab you, punch you and beat you up and take everything from you. So this guy's taking a closer look and he says, wait a minute this guy's only half dead. He's probably gonna jump up and attack me, and he said, I'm gonna get out of here. He hightails it out of there. But together, these two men, both Levites from the chosen tribe to officiate in the temple, one a priest, one simply a Levite, write this down. Together, they represent religion. They represent religion. One is a literal priest, the other is still part of the priestly tribe. So remember what the lawyer asked Jesus. He asked Jesus, what he must do to inherit eternal life, to be saved. What must I do? As you've probably heard before, religion is man's attempts to get to God. The gospel grace is God coming to man. And to make this point, Jesus shares a story where religion arrives on the scene twice, but religion can't save the dying man. Religion's powerless to help the dying man. It can't heal him. And in fact, religion doesn't even recognize that he's actually dying in one case. This must have cut the lawyer to the heart when he heard this, that religion could not save the dying man. So unable to be helped by the priest, unable to be helped by the Levite, thankfully our hero, Jesus Christ, arrives on the scene. The Samaritan was hated by the Jews. Likewise, we have all hated God with our actions, we've hated him. The Bible says we've all rejected him, we all turned away, we all did our own thing, every single one of us, we've all rebelled against him. Just as, think about this, nobody could have blamed the Samaritan if he just walked by. You couldn't have blamed him any more than you could have blamed a Jew for passing a dying Nazi in World War II. Every Jew that this man had ever met had probably spat at him or hurled an insult at him. You you couldn't really blame him if he passed by. Likewise, nobody could blame God if he simply passed us by and said, you've made your choice. You chose sin. You chose to reject me. Now live in it. I'll start over again. I'll start another planet and you guys can be the bad example that they learn from. Nobody could have blamed God. You think God owed us? Could we have said, hey, I kind of feel like you owe us your son coming to die for us to fix the mess we made. He didn't owe us anything. We didn't deserve his help, just as the wounded man did not deserve the help of a good Samaritan. But like the Samaritan, Jesus had compassion on us. He didn't pass by. He stopped. He saw our hopeless situation, and he entered into our hopelessness. With no consideration of the cost to himself, Jesus entered into our hopeless situation, our mess, and he saved us. Compassion is allowing another person's pain to enter your heart instead of simply seeing them as a pain in your butt. Jesus saw you. He saw me in pain, broken, hopeless, and he had compassion on us. And let me ask you this. Did... Did the man who was dying on the road find the Samaritan? Did he find him or did the Samaritan find him? The answer is obvious. Just as it is true that Jesus found you and I, we were in a position where we could not help ourselves. Write this down. We were saved by the compassion of God. We were saved by the compassion of God. As Romans 3 says, there's none who seeks after God, but thank God he sought after us. Some of you will recall that the very first message that Jesus preached publicly in his local synagogue included a reading from Isaiah 61, which was a centuries-old prophecy about him, the Messiah. And Isaiah 61 begins with these words, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted. If you're beat up, if you're wounded, if you're brokenhearted, Jesus is the only one who can ultimately make you whole. Because it's through the wounds that he acquired in his death that our wounds are healed. He's the only one who has the wounds that can heal. As verse 34 tells us, Jesus bandaged up our wounds. Pouring on oil and wine. Bible students, throughout the Bible, oil and wine are both types of what? Holy Spirit, yes! Great job, Rob. Types of the Holy Spirit. Go ahead and write that down. They're types of the Holy Spirit. Jesus healed us by giving us the Holy Spirit whom he himself called the Comforter. The Comforter. Now there is a difference between oil and wine and how they were used in medicinal practices at this time in history. They have different purposes. You see, oil soothes pain while wine disinfects. And that's what the Holy Spirit does in our lives. He brings comfort and he brings healing even to those hidden wounds, those internal bruises, those points of pain in our lives that nobody else even knows exist. He brings healing to those places. And he disinfects us. He works to get rid of the things in our lives that infect us, the anger, the bitterness, the rage, the unforgiveness. The Holy Spirit works to disinfect us. He soothes, he heals, and he disinfects. Do you realize that one of the primary roles of the Holy Spirit in your life and in my life is to help us walk in healing, to help us actually walk out the wholeness that Jesus has given us? Because you have the Holy Spirit, you don't need to worry what if I feel a great peace at church this morning, but I walk out of here and and it's gone and it stays at church? That's why you have the Holy Spirit so that the one who began that work in you will continue to complete it. He'll complete it. It's got nothing to do with where you are. The Holy Spirit is with you. He never leaves you. He never forsakes you. He will bring you peace and comfort and healing every day if you'll let him. That's part of his job description. He's the comforter. In just a few weeks from this time, Jesus will ride into Jerusalem and he'll reveal himself to be the Messiah to the whole general public. And what is Jesus gonna ride into Jerusalem on? He's he's gonna ride on a donkey, signifying that he's a king coming in peace, fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah 9.9, which reads, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey. But in this story, Jesus takes the wounded man and puts the wounded man on his donkey, and he walks beside it. Truly, as he said of himself, he is gentle and lowly in heart, for this is exactly what he has done for each of us. He has picked us up from the brink of death, not only saved us, but invited us to rule and reign with him. He put himself in our place on the cross and lifted us up to share in his place in heaven. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 2. Let me read to you what Paul says. Then after saving the man, after saving the good Samaritan, Jesus Christ takes him to an inn, we're told, because he knew that the wounded man would be taken care of at that inn. Make a note of this, and then we'll talk about it. The inn is the church. The inn is the church, the people of God. You see, the church doesn't save anyone. The church doesn't save anyone. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. But Jesus expects the church, you and I, to care for those whom he desires to save. He expects the church to help the wounded find healing. He expects the church to be a place where he can send broken people in need of rest and restoration. Remember what happens in this story. The Samaritan does the saving and he pays what? The initial cost of getting the man to the inn. The Samaritan pays the two denarii and gives the innkeeper the instruction, you take care of him. You take care of him. Those words are for us, the church of Jesus Christ. Take care of them. There is, I think, a very interesting prophetic angle here. I believe this to be true, but you can judge for yourself and come to your own conclusions. Second Peter 3.8 tells us that a day to the Lord is as what, a thousand years. It also says that a thousand years to the Lord is as a what, a day. So, knowing that two denarii is two days' wage, pretty much all biblical scholars are agreed that the Samaritan is paying for the wounded man to be in the inn for how many days? Two days, it's not a trick question, I promise. Two days' wages, two days' stay at the inn. Which means the Samaritan, our savior, Jesus, will be gone how long? Two days or 2,000 years. Which means he returns when? Early the third day, early the third day. He's coming back, church. Any day now, any day now, we're in that season of history. And this isn't the only place in the Gospels where this pattern shows up. The first miracle Jesus performs, the wedding in Cana, John 2, 1, it says, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. On the third day, there was what? A marriage feast, marriage feast. It's coming back, church. So notice what else the Samaritan says to the innkeeper in verse 35. He says, whatever more you spend, when I come again, when I come again, I will repay you. I'm going away for a few days and I'm leaving this man in your care. You take care of him. Here's enough money for two days. This is all you're gonna need until I return. Anything you spend above and beyond this, when I come again, I'll repay you, anything you spend for medical supply, don't worry about it, when I come back, I will repay you. For two days, Jesus is bringing the wounded and the broken to the end, to the church, and he gives us everything we need to care for those people for those two days. In Ephesians four, Paul writes, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. Those gifts that he gives us, his church, refers to the money, the denarii, the talents, the giftings, the resources, the time, all that we need to care for those that the Lord desires to send to his people, the church. He's given us what we need for the task if we are willing to recognize we've been given those things for the task, for the task, to do the job that he's called us to do. Why did Jesus only give us enough for two days? Because he's coming back on the third day, early in the third day. He says, listen, anything you spend above and beyond what I've given you, if you choose to sacrifice, if you choose to be more generous, to be more loving, to be more compassionate, if you choose to serve me above and beyond in any area, when I return, I will repay you. And listen, Jesus only ever repays our sacrifices for him exponentially. If you read the Bible, you'll notice this is not like, hey, you know that time that you gave 50 bucks to that person I told you to? Here's that 50 bucks back. You won't find that sort of logic in the Gospels anywhere. What you'll find is Jesus talking about how he repays tenfold, a hundredfold, infinitely more, above and beyond what we can imagine. If you loan Jesus your Chevette, he's going to come back with the Ferraris, sort of the idea. That's why it's going to be so much fun when we give out rewards in heaven because Jesus will be like, here's your reward. And you'll say, what for? And when he tells you, you'll be like, Seriously? Like for, for that, I get this. We're gonna be blown away by the importance, the, the enormity, the, the glory of these rewards. They're gonna be mind-blowing. For those who chose to give to him above and beyond, for those who chose to give to the Lord more than the minimum, and again, we're not just talking about money. Write this down. Jesus promises to repay anyone who spends above and beyond in any area in caring for those he brings to the inn, caring for those he brings to his church, his people. He promises to repay. I'm gonna wrap up here with just some closing thoughts. You know, Jesus loved the Lord, his father with all his heart, soul, strength, and mind. Jesus did it. He lived submitted to the father, speaking only what the father told him to say, doing only what the Father told him to do. He prioritized his relationship with the Father and loving the Father above everything, even his own life. Truly, only Jesus has ever fulfilled the Shema. Only Jesus. And only Jesus has loved his neighbor as himself, taken the form of a servant, coming down to his creation to be murdered by his creation so that he could save that very same creation of a mess from a mess of their own making and ultimately invite them to rule and reign with him in eternity. Truly only Jesus has ever loved his neighbor as himself. When he was being murdered on the cross, Jesus prayed for the very men who were killing him and the crowds who in a hellish frenzy had chanted and called for his crucifixion. He prayed for them as it was happening And he prayed that his father in heaven would not hold against them what they were doing. When you really understand that, it should leave you speechless. He prayed for them. As they were doing it. Not, I need some time with my father to stir up some forgiveness. As they were doing it. He's blessing them. He's praying for them. He's interceding for them. Forgiveness is releasing someone of a debt, but... What Jesus talks about in this story, the Good Samaritan, is way beyond that. Forgiveness is not running them over when you see them on the side of the road because you've released them. This is something totally different. This is saying pull over and help them. Help them, show kindness proactively through your actions to your worst enemies. That's a whole other level. The law says do this and you will live. But the gospel says, hey, live and you'll do this. The key being, you need to be born again. You need to be raised to new life in Jesus, finding the life that Jesus promised to everyone. He said, you'll find life in me and life to the full, because we can't do what Jesus is describing here. Nobody can fulfill the law, even though we probably all agree this is a wonderful thing to do, and this is the best way to live. The problem is we can't do it. Nobody ever has except Jesus and nobody ever will accept Jesus. But here's the miracle. When we begin to focus on living in Jesus, depending on Jesus, uh, abiding in his word, drawing close to him, knowing him, talking with him, relying on him, when our focus becomes Jesus, not even trying to be like him, but just Jesus, then we start becoming like him in some unbelievable ways, ways that are not natural to any of us. I was reminded again of the families of the 21 men who were killed by ISIS about a year ago now. And I shared the story when this happened, but I saw this video clip from a Christian Arabic TV show. And there's a call in time in the show, and um, one of the brothers of one of the men who had been martyred calls into the show. And the host of the show naturally is is very compassionate. He says, "How, how are you coping with the loss? Most of the men were from the same village in Egypt, they're Coptic Christians, and he says, how's your village doing? And neither the host nor anybody who was watching the show expected the brother to share what he did next. He says, the whole village is rejoicing. We're not sad, we're rejoicing. We're rejoicing that there were so many who were counted worthy to suffer with Jesus who were from our village, and they were our fathers, they were our brothers, they were our sons, and we are so proud of them, and then he thanked Isis, for filming their deaths, because he said it allowed everyone in the village to see that they were speaking the name of Jesus, singing the name of Jesus as they were killed to the very end, and that blessed them more than anything. And so through tears, the host asks the young man, he says, how is your mother doing? And the young man said, she too is rejoicing. And the young man says, I asked my mother, what would you do If Isis came to our village, and she says, I would invite them into my home, I'd go out into the street and ask them if they wanted to come in and have a meal so that I could tell them about Jesus. We can't do that. I I, I can't do that, and yet it happens. It happens, and it didn't happen in that village with those believers because they were trying really hard to be like Jesus. It just came out of them in that moment because they loved Jesus. And they had been becoming like Jesus in the days, weeks, and months, and years leading up to that moment. Just by loving him, they had become like him. And my prayer for myself and for you is that none of us would be bare minimum Christians. None of us would be bare minimum Christians that when rewards are handed out in the presence of Jesus one day, that we would all be receptors of rewards. I want that for all of us. If you have the gift of making money, give generously. If you have a gift that you can use to serve, serve sacrificially. If you have time to encourage someone and pray with them, do it. If you have time and opportunity to tell someone about Jesus, do it. If you have a spiritual gift like prophecy, then prophesy. Use it, obey the Lord when he tells you to do that. Let's not be bare minimum Christians. Let's, let's live radically for Jesus. Let's live like we actually believe he's coming back early on the third day and he will repay us anything we spend beyond what he's given us. He's coming back. He's coming back early on the third day and he's bringing rewards with him is what he's told us. Let's pray, would you bow your head and close your eyes? Jesus, we are in awe of what we see In the story of the Good Samaritan, we see a love that is radical, a love that transcends every divide that humanity has been able to dream up and invent. It crosses the divide of race and ethnicity and troubled histories. Lord, your love crosses every boundary, even the boundary of sin and our own mistakes and our own issues. Lord, thank you that you came to us a sinful people who was nothing like you, a holy and righteous God. And none of us could have blamed you if you simply passed us by as the priest did, as the Levite did. But you stopped and you had compassion on us, God. You had compassion on us. And forever, beginning now, We will reap the benefits of your compassion upon us. So thank you for saving us, God. And Lord, we're also in awe that you chose to bring wounded people. At one time, it was every single one of us, we were brought to an end. We were brought to your people, to your church. Where your spirit healed us, God, and continues to heal us. Father, I pray that we would rely on you for our healing. We would remember that we can walk in that healing moment by moment because your spirit continues to soothe us, oil and wine, Lord. And Father, may we not neglect the incredible importance of the truth that you have brought the wounded and the broken to us. And you've said, take care of them, take care of them. Father, help us to do that. Not just here, but in our jobs and in our neighborhoods where we're still your church. We're still your church. We're still your people. Father, we want to be a group of people and we want to be a group of individuals that you feel good about sending the wounded and the broken to. We want to be a church that you would look down upon and say, I can send them there. I can send them there. They'll take care of them there. Lord, make whatever changes you need to make to make us more of a place like that. Change me, change every single one of us as individuals to make us individuals that are more like that. Because we were all the wounded man at one point or another. You saved us and you healed us. Father, we love you, and we we pray that you do a work in us this morning. Make us more like you. Make us into who you want us to be, more like you, Jesus. Well, thanks for taking this time to listen and be in the Word of God with us. If you've never given your life to Jesus, then you need to go to our website, mynewhope.ca, right now. When you get there, you'll see a graphic on our homepage that says the gospel. Click on that and you'll be able to watch a short video where we share the best news you'll ever hear in your life. It's more important than whatever else you're doing right now. So stop whatever else you're doing. Go to mynewhope.ca and click on the gospel. If God has blessed you through this message, we'd love to hear about it. Shoot us an email at info at mynewhope.ca and let us know how God has impacted your life through his word. If you're in the greater Vancouver area, I want to invite you personally to come and be a part of New Hope Church. We believe God is doing something real special as we grow together in our faith and love for Jesus, and we would love you to be a part of it.